0: This morning we're beginning a new sermon series. I think Krista mentioned er, it earlier, but it's called A Life Well Lived. A Life Well Lived. And instead of giving you a lengthy uh, description of what the sermon series is going to be, I'll touch on that in a few minutes, let me begin with a movie clip that I think might sort of uh, stick in your mind a little bit. Um, This is going to be from Tim Burton's uh, movie called Big Fish. It came out in 2003 and in the scene that we're about to watch, there is a father on his deathbed in a hospital. His son, who is a writer, sits by his father and honors his father by telling him the story of his life. And uh, in the son, uh, in the story that the son tells, he and his dad escape from the hospital and they make it to a river. And at that river, there are all these people from the father's life throughout his whole entire life. They're waiting to honor him and to applaud him as his life comes to an end. And the final person to greet him in the scene and to bid him farewell is his wife. Let's take a moment now, let's watch, and then we'll jump into the rest of the sermon in just a minute. That uh, It's funny, I saw that movie back in, maybe when it first came out in 2003, and I couldn't quite figure out why it resonated so deeply with me. And that scene in particular always brings tears to my eyes because I think um, at a very deep level, each of us longs to hear at the end of our lives, well done. I think that's a deep desire within each of us. We long to hear those words spoken not only from God to us. I think we long to hear those words from him but i think we also long to hear those words spoken by those around us by our our wives or husbands by our children by our coworkers we long to know that we've lived a good life and again as i mentioned earlier we're beginning this sermon series this morning that we're calling a life well lived so over the next 6 weeks we're going to be looking at the wisdom literature, and the wisdom books in Scripture are Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And we're going to see what guidance they have for us as we seek to live lives that honor God and bring flourishing into the lives of the people that live around us. Today, we're going to be looking, as Krista mentioned earlier, particularly at this theme of speech. We're going to see what Proverbs, in particular, has to say about our speech. But before we begin, let's take a moment let's pray. Father, I pray that... um, that we would be moved today by this desire that truly does reside within each of us to hear those words well done from you, to know that we have lived good lives. Father, I pray that uh, we would seek to surrender our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our tongues um, to you, our Heavenly Father, the author of reality, the one that has the ability to tell us what is true and what is good, and what's right, and what's wrong, and what's beautiful, Father. And I pray that we would surrender to you, and that we would seek to live lives um, that bring honor and glory to you, and flourishing into the lives of those that we love. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a man named Edward Gamson. He was a dentist, and for two years, he had been so busy at work that he didn't take a vacation. And so... After those two years of uh, not taking any vacation, he decided to hop on a plane and to go to Portugal. And on uh, the way home from Portugal, he decided that he wanted to go sightseeing in Granada, G-R-A-N-A-D-A, Granada. It's a province in Spain. And it was on his way back from Portugal. Some nine hours later, after boarding the plane, however, he landed in the Caribbean island of Grenada, G-R-E-N-A-D-A. 4,000 miles from his intended destination. Mr. Gramson was interviewed by a newspaper and he told them this. He said, I made it absolutely clear to the booking agent's, uh, agent at the airline that I wanted to go into Granada in Spain. Why on earth would I want to go to Grenada in the Caribbean if I was flying back to America from Lisbon, Portugal? And so he ended up suing the airline. The judge refused to throw out the suit and honored that it would be heard. And then the judge added this. He said, this case proves the truth of Mark Twain's aphorism that, and I quote, the difference between the right word and almost the right word is the difference between the lightning and the lightning bug. Two very different things. Except here, only a single letter's difference is involved. So many of us intuitively understand just how important our speech is. The Bible very clearly takes our speech seriously, we know that. Two of the Ten Commandments are focused on our speech. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, and thou shalt not bear false witness. Both of those have to do with the way that we speak. As a boy, I probably would have assumed that cussing was absolutely the worst possible thing, verbal sin, that you could commit, Uh, but the Bible makes a much, much bigger deal about other sins, like gossip and slander and dishonesty. Our speech is of infinite importance. The book of Proverbs makes it clear that our words are actually a matter of life and death. Let's take a look at what just a few of those Proverbs have to say. Beginning in Proverbs 10, verse 11 says this, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs twelve eighteen says this, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs fifteen four goes on to say this: a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. There are many, many more proverbs that address certain aspects of our speech. Those of you who have ever read the proverbs before know that there's any number of things we could talk about. But this morning, I want to focus primarily on the idea that our words can either bring about life or death, flourishing, or disintegration, order, or chaos. In 2013, a Wall Street Journal article entitled, In His Words, Nelson Mandela affirmed the seriousness of our words when he said this, it is never my custom to use words lightly. If 27 years in prison have done anything to us, it was to use the silence of solitude to make us understand how precious words are, and how real speech is and its impact on the way people live and die. In other words, 27 years of being in prison taught Nelson Mandela that his words were a matter of life and death. Let's focus now first on the negative impact that our words can have. We're going to look at the destructive power of our words. Just looking at the three Proverbs we read just a moment ago, we can see that words can be used to conceal violence they are likened to sword thrusts, and they can be used to break someone's spirit. For those of you who've ever been the victim of verbal abuse, whether in person or online, if you've been the victim of a verbal attack, you know just how true each of those descriptions can be. Over the last five years, our church has engaged with a ministry called Battle for the Heart. It's a year-long process that's sort of a third Bible study and a third support group, and a third Christian psychology. And one of the key components of going through that process is to write up what we call a pose sketch. It's basically an attempt to describe how people develop what might be called a persona or a false self or a pose. It's sort of that outward thing they show to the world in order to get what they want from people and from life and to avoid from people and from life what they don't want and writing a post sketch often begins with identifying wounds that they had received early in life sometimes a defining wound was the death of a parent or maybe the death of a sibling in childhood it was no one's fault but it was a, new, a wound nevertheless often the wounds are from a parent who abandoned the family sometimes the wounds were wounds of neglect for one reason or another a parent wasn't or didn't take care of a child, and so that child learned to care for themselves, and often they decided that they would never entrust themselves to another person. All too often, these wounds that we hear about in this pose sketch were physical. Maybe they were sexual at the hands of someone who should have cared for and loved that person as a child. Very commonly, the wounds are verbal. The men and women in battle for the heart often recount those hurtful words with tears streaming down their face. They heard things like, you're an idiot, or you'll never amount to anything, or why can't you be more like your sister, or I wish you'd never been born. Some of the things that were said to those young people in their childhood are so evil that I can't even begin to bring myself to say them here where we are. Those verbal wounds are then incorporated in one way or another into someone's pose or persona or false self. The person who was told that they were an idiot might become a straight-A student just to prove that parent wrong. They spend their whole life constructing a pose of being the smartest person in the room, but ultimately it's exhausting. They never get a chance to just sort of rest or be. Or that same person who was called an idiot may believe that that declaration of them Was absolutely, completely, and totally true. And so they never achieve any academic success whatsoever, regardless of their IQ. And worse yet, their internal narrative or dialogue is one of self loathing. The damage done by words is very, very real, and it can be a matter of life or death. It's no wonder that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount so strongly condemned speaking with contempt to anyone. Here's what he had to say in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, that means empty-headed one, or it's kind of a, a term like stupid or idiot, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus took calling someone stupid every bit as seriously as he took murder. So one simple takeaway here is that we as Christians shouldn't use our speech to tear other people down. That's typically what we're trying to do when we curse at someone, when we lose our temper and say mean things to someone. It's exactly what we're trying to do when, that well, that, when we fire that well-placed remark at someone with whom we're angry. I once had a friend who heard his mom tell his dad, I should have married a real man, like a trucker. You can imagine that she knew exactly where she needed to aim that comment in order to emasculate this person with whom she was angry. The wisdom literature doesn't just talk about cursing, however. If you listen to Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, you'll see that there are lots of things. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste or unto to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Of the seven things the Lord hates, three of them involve our speech. Two can be classified under the heading of dishonesty, and the other is likely related to gossip or to slander. And regardless, every sin of the tongue, what it does is it tears at the fabric of humanity. It tears at the fabric of our relationship. It tears at the fabric of another person. So people who tell lies or who shade the truth, ultimately they won't be trusted by their spouses, by their coworkers, or their friends. They'll never experience real intimacy. Gossip and slander might benefit you in the short term, but in the long run, like with lying, eventually people won't trust you and they won't want to be in a relationship with you. If you gossip about someone else, it's logical that that person would then assume that eventually you'll gossip about them. Ultimately, these verses remind us that God hates those sins, not only because they harm you, because they harm us, but because they harm others as well. Truly, our speech, our negative speech, is a matter of life. It's a matter of death. It's about flourishing. It's a matter of chaos, creation, or destruction. So we just took a moment and we glanced at the power of our destructive words. What about the power of our life-giving words? The, power of, the life-giving power of our words is our next point. Let me begin with an illustration. Some of you saw the movie The Blind Side, and in it we see Sean and Leanne. I think their last name is Tui. Uh, they're the couple that are the adoptive parents in the movie The Blind Side. They wrote a book called In a Heartbeat, and in it they share the following story. I'm going to read it says this, there's a little known congressional program that awards internships to young people who have aged out of the foster care system. These are kids who were never adopted and are no longer eligible for state support. A senator that we've met employed one such young man as an intern. One morning, the senator breezed in for a meeting and he discovered that this intern was already in the office reorganizing the entire mail room. The senator said to the intern, this is amazing. The mailroom has never looked so clean. You did a great job. A few minutes later, the senator saw that the intern had tears streaming down his face. So the senator turned to the young man and said, are you okay? Yes, the intern answered quietly. Did I say something to offend you? The senator asked. No, sir. What's wrong? The young man said, that's the first time in my life that anyone has told me that I did something good. The Tuohys, in their book, then comment, A little bit of attention and a kind word. That's how little it takes to affect someone's life for the better. We understand the life-giving power of our words. Over the years, I've had the privilege of sitting and talking to probably literally thousands of people in ministry. And since I'm a pastor, people often share things with me that they've never shared with anyone else. Sometimes the things they share are painful, ways in which they've wounded other people Or maybe ways in which they've been wounded themselves. On the other hand, they also share with me the things and the people in their lives that have been life-giving, life-altering. Often they'll share with me how they were on some destructive trajectory in life when someone, maybe it was a coach, maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was a youth pastor or mentor of some sort, entered into their life and altered the course of their life. Often these people spoke life-giving words to these people. They said things like, I believe in you, or you're capable of so much. You can do anything you set your mind to, or you're really smart. Often the words they spoke counteracted and were the antidote to words spoken by a careless parent, a childhood acquaintance, or from the evil one himself, which had communicated the exact opposite, and which the recipient had come to believe about himself or herself, in 2011, there was a movie entitled The Help, maybe some of you guys remember it, set in 1960s in Mississippi, and it chronicles the secret world of African-American nannies and maids working in white homes and families during that era. And one of the most meaningful vignettes in that movie depicts Viola Davis working as a nanny to a three-year-old little girl named Mae Mobley. May's mother is distant toward her daughter, She's critical towards her daughter and somewhat embarrassed of her daughter because of her daughter's lack of grace as she perceives it. And seeking to offset the damage that she knows is being done to this three-year-old little girl, Viola Davis takes a moment each day to to tell May, you is smart, you is kind, you is important. You is smart, you is kind, you is important. After which she has May, this three-year-old, repeat back to her, those very same words. She knows, Viola Davis knows, that she's going to need them later in life, that those words will be a source of life for her. So what do we see about the life-giving power of our words in Proverbs? Proverbs 15.4 says this, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A gentle tongue. Sometimes how we say something is just as important as what we say In this case, a gentle tongue is likened to a tree of life. In fact, the Hebrew word translated gentle here is embedded with the concept or the idea of healing. By the way, that doesn't mean we only say things that would be considered positive. In fact, gentleness might be needed precisely when we're saying something that might be perceived as negative by the recipient. That's why in Ephesians 4.15, we're reminded to speak the truth in love, to speak the truth in love. Again, how we say something is oftentimes just as important as what we say. What else do we see in the Proverbs about the life-giving power of our words? One of the other things that we see is that it's not just how we say something that's important, but it's what we say. Look at Proverbs thirteen fourteen. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. We're to use our words not only to heal, but also to teach and convey truth, to teach and convey wisdom. In doing so, we give life by turning people away from ways of living that ultimately lead to death. This can be a parent teaching a child not to touch a hot stove. We're familiar with that one. Or it can be a parent teaching a teenager how to drive. Please put two hands on the steering wheel. Remember how you say it is also as important as what you say. I'm talking to myself there. It could also be practical advice that a coach gives on how to tackle correctly, and it could be the advice your river guide gives you about what to do and not do if you fall out of the raft. Often the wisdom that we as Christians should convey is about how to live a life of surrender to God. That's how it works. That's what Proverbs is all about. In fact, Proverbs 1 verse 7 reminds us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the starting point. You're not God. He is. So much of what the Proverbs convey is the idea that if we live lives of submission to God, uh, who God is, and how he would have us live, then life will almost always go well. It'll lead to a life of flourishing, and of course, there are exceptions to that. Our minds run to those exceptions pretty quickly, and that's actually why Ecclesiastes and Job were written. We'll get to those later in this sermon series. But in general, a life of surrender to God will lead to a life of flourishing. There are many more proverbs about our speech that we could focus on here. Those proverbs convey certain truths like God delights in those who speak truthfully, right? He, he really delights when we speak the truth. Kings appreciate and reward people who tell the truth. Another proverb essentially says, if you speak wisely, then you'll be a person of influence. Another one says, you can say the right thing, but you can say it for the wrong reason. And there are even proverbs that say things like, sometimes it's better to not speak at all. In fact, if you hold your tongue, people will more often than not consider you to be wise. The proverbs has a lot to say, both negatively and positively, about our words. In fact, I'll try to uh, have a list of the different proverbs in our speech put on our website this week. I'll try to to make that happen. So keeping in mind each of these proverbs, what advice do I have for us about a life well lived? Three things that I'll leave you as takeaways. The first is this, always tell the truth or at least don't lie. Let me say that one more time. Always tell the truth or at least don't lie. That quote is probably familiar to a couple of you. Um, I won't cite the source, but I will cite someone else. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was uh, the man who uh, won the Pulitzer Prize back in the 60s for his book, The Gulag Archipelago. He watched the rise of Stalin's uh, totalitarian communist Russia. He survived 10 years in the gulags, and he wrote that the antidote to tyranny is, in his words, to live not by lies, to live not by lies. So always tell the truth, or at least don't lie. Number two, When you do speak the truth, speak the truth in love. It's so easy to speak the truth in anger. It's so easy to speak the truth in disgust. It's so easy to speak the truth in an attempt to hurt someone else. But remember how you say something, and the intent in which you say it is as important as what you say. Therefore, speak the truth in love. Finally, use your words to create life, goodness, and flourishing. As you do so, you're fulfilling your duty as someone who is created in God's image. That's part of what makes us in God's image. Who at the beginning spoke and created life and light. So, speak life and light to those in your domain. Encourage them, rebuke them, and when necessary, remind them of who they truly are. Even Jesus needed that. If you remember when Jesus was getting ready to go into the wilderness alone to be tempted by Satan for 40 days, it was then that God appeared to him and said, what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Before the biggest challenge of his life, Jesus needed to hear the voice of his father reminding him of who he was of what was true about him we too need to hear the voice of our Heavenly Father. And one of the greatest mysteries and the gifts that comes from Christianity is that because of our union with Christ, we get what only Jesus deserves.